Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. As we begin our talk today, I want to take you back to this spring. Can you remember that far back? It was about eight weeks ago. Back then, people were still cleaning up from South by Southwest. And uh, schools were still in session. The low was 58 degrees. Yeah, on this 100-degree day. It was April 21st, 2019, Easter Sunday. A day where we lifted our voices and celebrated and worshipped the resurrected King, Jesus himself. That was the week where a bunch of our kids ate too many peeps after the Easter egg hunts and went into a sugar coma. That was uh, crazy. But if we could get in a time machine and go back there to Easter Sunday right here at One Chapel, if you were here, you might remember we asked a simple question. And that question is what is the most relatable symbol in our Christian faith? Is it the manger where a tiny baby was born, the the first and last being to ever walk this earth that was fully human and yet somehow fully God? Is it the cross, the symbol perched on a church and on steeples all over the world, on hospitals, the symbol that you often see tattooed on a forearm or hanging around people's necks. Is it, it's a symbol, see? It's a symbol. The cross is a powerful symbol that Jesus transformed from a symbol of death into a symbol of hope and life. It was a miracle. Of course, death to life is at the core of our gospel story our good news story. And the cross is certainly one of the most iconic symbols in the Christian faith, but it's not exactly relatable. Of course, today there's no everyday use for a cross as a device of capital punishment. A cross hasn't widely been used that that way since the fall of the Roman Empire. And so there's this somewhat lesser iconic Christian image It's the table where Jesus sat with his disciples at the Last Supper. And the truth is, a table is relatable. It's so relatable that we see it everywhere in pop culture. As you might remember, (laughs) there is a lost TV show Last Supper picture. (laughs) There is a Star Wars Last Supper picture picture, which I love. (laughs) There's even a cereal mascot's last supper. (laughs) A table is so relatable because it's where we gather. We use a table today just like we used it 2,000 years ago. We gather around it with friends, with neighbors, and sometimes even enemies. 
Because you got to invite your in-laws over every once in a while. Ooh, easy people. But if, if you remember Easter Sunday, we asked the question, what would the Last Supper look like if it were to happen in 2019 in our culture, in our time? And we demonstrated how the gospel story invites everyone to the table. Come on, say everyone. Jesus says everyone is welcome at this table. Everyone can find life and redemption at this table. We demonstrated how the gospel story speaks to us. Everyone can find life and redemption here. But in this series, I want to I go deeper. This series we're launching today... I want, it, I want you to see beyond just the Last Supper. I don't know if you realize it or not, but Jesus sat across from, from many, many people at tables throughout his life. He sat with a wealthy, vertically challenged tax collector, a woman with five ex-husbands, and a group of men who were so convinced he was dead that Jesus had to actually eat fish in front of them to prove he wasn't a ghost. Through the gospel writers, Luke and John, we're going to look at who Jesus sat with at various tables throughout his ministry and explore what those encounters were really like. We hope to learn from Jesus how a common meal can lead to an uncommon miracle. How a simple conversation can lead to a supernatural transformation. As we launch Supper for Six today, right? We're launching here th- these dinners all around our region at one chapel. We have, we have all kinds of different groups. We're going to discover together how we can turn an ordinary lunch into an extraordinary act of love and grace. We're going to consider how a table can be turned into an opportunity, a place of vulnerability, and how even breakfast just might be a bridge to understanding between people. And these stories are not just fairy tales, like they're actual encounters with Jesus. And so I want to invite you to the table. I want to encourage you to gather at your own tables this summer and invite someone else to it as we grow in sharing our lives with others at the table. So I want you to open your Bibles. Take a moment here. Turn on your Bible. It's on your device. If you need a message note, the ushers do have them. They're in the aisles. But we're going we're gonna to read... From Luke 22, Luke 22, verse 14 through 30. Just raise your hand and the message notes are available to you if you need them. Luke 22, verse 14, I'm going to read it to you. It says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 
After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that the entrance of it gives us light. Let revelation happen as we open the scriptures, as we talk about Jesus and how he met people at the table. We're open to you. We're willing. We're ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Were you ever completely certain about something that you suddenly realized you were totally wrong about? Of course you were. We all were. We all have been wrong at some point where we had a a paradigm that was wrong and suddenly it was lifted. We saw something differently. We look back and we think, how could we have missed that? Occasionally we all have what is known as a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift. The Oxford Dictionary describes it as a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. Here's some examples. Look at this picture behind me. Is this a vase, a vase for those of you from other parts of the world? Or is it a face and a mirror, two faces, a vase or two faces? Which is it? Some of you are familiar with this. This has been around a while. The old woman and the young lady. Like, you got to see which one is it. How many see the young lady? Raise your hand. Okay, awesome. How many see the old woman? 
a lot less. How many see them both? <laughs> You've seen it before. There's suddenly this moment. Some of you are like, I can't see the old woman. I can't see it. I can't see it. I can't see it. After church, you're going to go look it up. Try to see it. You may be distracted. This entire message. Do not Google it on your phone. The disciples came to the Last Supper, but they had not yet experienced the paradigm shift, the life-altering, mind-bending, soul-transforming paradigm called the resurrection. It hadn't happened yet for them. Here in this moment at the Last Supper, this paradigm had not overtaken them, and so at this table there was fear, there was control, there was selfishness and ambition, there's a tunnel vision and a myopic view of religion and of power. There's confusion as to what Jesus is doing and what he's trying to do. Here at this table, Jesus is beginning to reveal to them who he is and what's ahead for him, but remember Judas... People know Judas all over the world. He's a famous person, but some people don't realize that he wanted the kingdom of God to come in the worst way, literally the worst way, his own way. Jesus confronts Judas at an uprising among the crowds that followed Jesus. If only he were arrested. Judas likely thought that Jesus' kingdom would be taken by force as the massive crowds rebelled, rebelled against the Roman Empire. Unfortunately, that never happened. Or fortunately for us. Later in the passage, as we read, Peter is convinced. He's sure of his conviction that he will die for Jesus. Isn't it interesting, though, that Jesus wasn't really interested in him dying. He was interested in Peter living in a new way. Jesus shared himself at the table. He engaged in, in this rich dialogue. There was a lot of things that happened at this table. He engaged in challenge as well as encouragement. But there was so much misunderstanding of what was about to happen to Jesus. They could not conceive of the humility and servanthood and even the death that Jesus was about to endure and surrender to. Have you ever missed it this badly? Me too. Luke records that a dispute actually arises at the table, right? As we read it, there's a dispute. They're talking about who's going to betray Jesus, and that discussion somehow yields to, well, who's the worst among us now? Who's the greatest? Like, I don't get it. Like, how self-absorbed do you have to be at the table with Jesus as he's explaining this incredible torment and struggle, this persecution and even death that he is going to have to face, of which he's, he's told them many times is going to happen. And you're thinking about who's going to be the greatest. Hey, it's easy to get self-absorbed in Austin in 2019. It's pretty common for people to gather for dinner in Austin and try to impress their friends or their clients. Many a meal is consumed at True Lux or La Condesa downtown in the name of trying to sell something or promote something or promise something. 
Tables are full at Uchi and Contigo and even the odd duck. <laughs> Trying to prove how cool they are. Trying to convince people they're poised to take the next rung of the ladder in their career. Listen, Jesus takes this moment at the table to prepare his disciples for a paradigm shift because I think, here's what I really believe, I think gathering at a table creates many opportunities for a shift in our thinking. Look again at Luke twenty-two twenty-five, verse 25. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. That, I looked up that word benefactor. It means uh, the doers of good, people who've, who do really well, right? He's, he's, Jesus is talking about how those who see themselves as do-gooders, they're the ones who lord it over others but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? Jesus is saying, yeah, people think the one who's being served is the greatest. And he says, but I am among you as one who serves. See, Jesus is clarifying for his disciples, the, the ones who've been with him for three years now, what this table was really about. Why they're sharing bread and cup together, but they can't seem to hear it. You would think they would have gotten used to the way Jesus functions or the way he lives, but paradigms are often very difficult to change. If we're not careful, we fall into the same trap. You see, church... I want to highlight something for you. We are called together as a group of people. It's so important that you understand this because there are two kinds of churches. Two kinds of churches. Serve us or service. You got to choose. You got to choose which one you're going to be. And you're looking at me like, well, you're the pastor. You should choose. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I... I've got to choose to serve. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the leader here, but my best gifts are used to serve people. And I've got to convince you that your best use of gifts that God has given you is to serve people in need. Serving people all over this place. I just take a moment right here to mention it's the, the, the hardest job that there is around one chapel. You know what it is? Breakdown. I like to call it tear down because we tear up so much stuff. But No, they do, they, they do a pretty good job, but people don't last in that role. It's a hard job. It's the lowest. It's the place where you clean up after everybody leaves. Everybody else is at lunch and you're putting away signs. It's hard to fill that team. Hard to make that team thrive. Believe me, we've tried. <laughs> you see, two kinds of churches. One has an internal focus. Help make me a better person. <laughs> help make me a better person. Or one has an external focus. Help me make this world a better place. Could it be that Jesus had a reason for choosing the Passover meal as the context, the background 
for this conversation? Was it this simple, rough-hewn table intentionally chosen by Jesus that represented a paradigm shift for them? Was it this new covenant meal of bread and wine that represented love, relationship, and hope that he was calling his disciples to? Because in some ways, it was so ordinary. They'd done it hundreds of times. And yet here in this moment, there was something else Jesus was trying to communicate. See, I think if you look through the scriptures, you see that Jesus did all kinds of ministry at all kinds of tables. Think about how many miracles happened because Jesus shared a meal with somebody. Just check this out. I'm just going to read you a list. Feeding of the four and 5,000. Miraculous. A meal at the house of Zacchaeus. Dinner with a Pharisee and a prostitute. Eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus was accused of, which we'll talk about here in a minute. The woman at the well and the incredible conversation. The meal and the road to Emmaus. Breakfast on the beach. We desperately need to come to the table of Jesus and learn his ways because we face a fundamental challenge in our culture, One Chapel. We got, we got an issue with the way we talk to each other. We've, we're, we're, we're at a loss for dialogue in these days. Of genuine conversation, dare I say, of hospitality. A lack of leisurely engaging around a meal shared by friends or neighbors. We live in a divisive and disruptive time where paradigms do not shift. Where narratives are held and clutched by hands with fear. Where opinions are more valued than hospitality. Eugene Peterson He's an amazing writer. He's the author of the Message Bible and many other books. Here's what he said in a book, a little brilliant book called Living the Resurrection. He said, the common meal is probably the primary way by which we take care of our physical need for food and our social need for conversation and intimacy and our cultural need to carry on traditions and convey values. The meal... Preparation, serving, eating, cleaning up, cleaning up, (laughs) I always have to say that over and over to my cleaning up, has always been a microcosm of the intricate realities that combine to make up even the simplest life of men, women, and children. Because it is so inclusive, anyone can be included in the meal, and because it is so comprehensive, taking in the entire range of our existence, physical, social, cultural. The meal provides an endless supply of metaphors for virtually everything we do as human beings. These metaphors nearly always suggest something deeply personal and communal, giving and receiving, knowing and being known, accepting and being accepted, bounty and generosity. Eugene goes on to say three things create significance for meals. The significance of meals, number one, our common humanity, our common humanity. We all need to be nourished, young, old, rich, poor, gender, race. Is there anything we do as frequently and simply that combines both necessity and pleasure? (laughs) Pleasure. I love Jack Allen's. (laughs) Right? It's like I need to eat. 
but do I need to eat that much? <laughs> but there's so, in the meal, there is this sharing of common humanity with family, friends, or guests. The act of eating has a way of obscuring self-importance. Have you ever noticed this? It's hard to, at least temporarily, be f- self-absorbed and self-importance when you have to open your mouth and put something in it across from someone else. There's something, uh, uh, there's a veil that kind of falls. It's kind of why we want to serve food at almost every function and why one chapel people have to work out. <clears throat> Number two, a sacrifice. Not only our common humanity, but the significance of meals is a sacrifice. One life given for another. Even if it's, even if it's a plant-based diet you're on, some plant... It was living, now it's not. And it gave its life for you. There's a sacrificial nature to it. The lesson is that none of us are self-sufficient. We cannot live completely self-contained. We need something or someone to help us live. Number three, the act of giving and receiving. Sharing, participating, hosting, serving. The act of giving and receiving is a powerful idea all across the scripture. I don't know if you've noticed, but good hosts, they don't make a big deal out of it. Good hosts, you barely know that they're taking care of stuff. Hospitality is a calling that you and I must embrace that we all have on our lives. Now look at this. Look at this in Luke 7, verse 34. It's in your message notes there. Luke 7, 34 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. I think there's something for most of us that just goes kind of over our head when we read a verse like this. Eating and drinking, what is... What does that have to do with anything? Why is it noteworthy? One of the major reasons why this idea of eating and drinking kind of leaves us, it doesn't really impact us, is because meals meant so much more back then. In Jesus' culture, it meant so much more than it does in ours, and we've lost the power and the impact that meals can have in our lives. Mary Douglas, in her book called Boundary Markers, says it this way. Meals bring people together, but they also keep people apart. Think of the pre-civil rights restaurants in the South. The no blacks signs on the front door. Or in England, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Even in our laid-back, open-minded, progressive cities, still as a general rule, most of us eat with people who are friends or family. Most of us eat with people who are like us, who fall into the same basic socioeconomic stratum as us, who are of the same ethnicity as us. Now, this is true of all societies, but this was especially true of first century Jewish society. The New Testament scholars call this table fellowship. Say it together. Table fellowship. There's something called table fellowship that's so important. I want to give you the backstory on it because 400 years before Jesus, the people of Israel were dragged off into exile. Everybody say exile. Exile. 
And they're living in the nation of Babylon a thousand miles to the east. And here's, when that happened, the temple that was in Jerusalem was totally destroyed, which meant that the center of the Jewish faith, the temple, was obliterated. The sacrificial system was put to an end because the temple was destroyed. And the priesthood, the ministry before God, was wiped out. And so imagine that you're now in Babylon, and how do you obey the commands of the Torah? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy... There's a lot of rules and regulations in there. (laughs) And so how do you even obey even half of those commands with no temple? No sacrifices, no priests. Well, you can't. And so the rabbis came up with a new framework. Think about this. A new framework to practice Judaism. And this is what they came up with. Your home is now the new temple. Your table is now the new altar. The father of the house is now the priest, and the meal is the new sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating? But then the Pharisees, the hardcore religious sect of Jewish religious leaders, they they came along and saying that what got us into exile was sin. And so what will get us out of exile is Less sin, or preferably no sin. <laughs> and so there was this idea, and you've got to get this. There was a, this idea, sometimes we give the religious leaders a hard time as they're fighting with Jesus, but really they believed down to their core. There was this idea that if all Israel would just obey what had been written, if they would just, even for 24 hours, do everything in the Torah for 24 hours, it would release, it would, it would open up the moment for the Messiah to come because they believed that perfect obedience was the thing to unlock that. It was a misreading of Scripture, for sure. They missed what God was trying to do to show all people everywhere that in and of yourselves, it's hopeless. Jesus, the Messiah, comes on the scene. And even though some of the Israelites were back in Israel and the temple had been, there had been a restoration process, two-thirds of the Jewish people were still scattered. And a third of the Jewish people were back in Israel. And so all those Jews were under Roman rule. And under Roman rule, they still felt like they were in exile. So how do we get out of this? And what the Pharisees did was they upped the ante. They said, they said they called every person, not just the priests, but every Jew to live by the commands of the priests of the temple because after all, your home is the new temple and your table is the new altar and your meal is the new sacrifice. And now on the surface, oh, that's pretty cool. That's kind of neat that they did that. But you know the commands of the priests in the scripture uh, for, for the temple are pretty stringent. <laughs> There's a bazillion rules and regulations that they had to maintain, including things like no Gentile could sit at your table. Neither could tax collectors. Neither could anyone who had special needs. Neither could anyone who was deformed. Neither could lepers or any diseased person. And most definitely no one who was a sinner could sit at your table. Which is a way to say those who were not Torah observant. This is a problem. This was a problem for Jesus. New Testament commentator Scott Barchi says this. He says, It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. 
Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony rich, richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. You can see here why the rabbis in that culture would never be caught dead eating a meal at, home, at a home of a drunkard or a tax collector or a sinner. One German theologian says it like this. He says, in the East, even today, to, to invite someone to a meal is an honor. It is an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table means sharing life together. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship meant fellowship before God. The eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners in table fellowship is an inclusion in the community of salvation. To them, it was the most meaningful expression of the redeeming love of God. So this is what Jesus was doing. What Jesus was doing was unheard of and absolutely radical. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the people Jesus sat with at a table. And how some of them, many of them, were considered untouchable. They were these outcasts. Which is why, the reason why Jesus had a reputation of being a glutton and eating and drinking with drunkards, tax collectors, and sinners. In the Gospel of Luke alone, there are 50 references to Jesus and food. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are 94 references to Jesus and food. New Testament scholar Robert Karras writes, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. (laughs) I like this Jesus. Now, the deal with Jesus is he walked every meal, so you're going to have to walk more. I want to be like Jesus. I want to do what Jesus did. But here's the thing. Jesus got himself killed because of the people he ate with. Because he ate with all the wrong people. See, for Jesus, meals were not a boundary marker. For Jesus, meals were a sign of God's great welcome into the kingdom. For Jesus, meals were not a way to keep people out, but a way to invite people in. Look at this verse in Luke 19, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Now this phrase, the Son of Man came, it's not just used once in the book of Luke, but twice in Luke 7, 34, the verse we just Red. And once it's used to describe Jesus' mission, and once it's used to describe his methodology. Look at it, Luke 19:10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Seeking and saving was Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was seeking and saving, not lost as in stupid, not lost as in um like a a person who's not intelligent, but lost as in, in the wrong place. God wants you to be in a different place, and he's seeking and saving people who are just in the wrong spot, and he's welcoming to the table to show them that they have a place. Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, eating and drinking, that was Jesus' methodology. 
That was his method. In other words, how he did it. Jesus lived in a culture where a lot of people were hostile and at arm's length towards him and his way in the kingdom. And so the question becomes, for you and me, how did Jesus walk people into his kingdom? How did people walk Jesus into his kingdom? The answer is one meal at a time. One meal at a time. See, if Jesus had a method of evangelism, the best I can tell from looking at all four gospels as as we study this, if you're with a bunch of conservative cultural Christians, people who already for the most part believe the Bible and believe in God, but may have just missed the plot line. They just, they just didn't quite get it and need to come back to where what they already deep down know on the inside is true. Then by all means, stand up in a crowd, get as many people there as you can and preach. That's why Billy Graham could gather thousands and thousands of people and he preached and people came to Jesus in those moments. But our culture has changed. And you have to see what Jesus was doing in his culture. Somebody, if you're with somebody who's on the margin, somebody who's been hurt by the church or somebody who's been hurt by the family of God, somebody who wants nothing to do with organized religion, then open your home, eat a long meal, open a bottle of wine if you're okay with that. If you're not, water will do just fine. Spend time with someone who no good upstanding Christian would be caught dead with and talk. Talk small talk. Oh, Pastor Roz, I hate small talk. Small talk is a gift. And listen, ask questions. Listen, really listen. Meet people right where they're at, not where you feel like they should be. Some of you are going to have supper for six. You're going to invite all these people that belong to one chapel, and you're going to impose on them where you think they should be, and they're not. Don't assume. Love people, and then eventually invite them to experience the life that is now normative for you, normal for you, the life you have with Jesus. That's it. This practice of eating and drinking was central to the way of Jesus. It's not a side point. It's central. It's right at the core. And tragically, I think we've lost some of this in our modern hyper-individualism with the suburbanization of urban planning and after a long day of work, we go to our, drive into our house, we, we, we push the garage door button and it goes up and we go in and hide in our castle. What if we were to recapture what Jesus did? What if we could recapture it in our, in our practice? Not as entertainment, right? Because everybody wants to be entertained, Not just thinking about food as entertainment, not as a social benefit to our status, not as a closed-off culture of insiders, but as the practice of the Jesus way of hospitality. Love, relationship, sharing the kingdom of God. What might happen in our community? What might happen in our city? What might happen in our neighborhoods? Here's what I want to say to you. Stop, Stop eating simply as a way of entertaining yourself. Stop eating is simply a way of entertaining. I know, Chick-fil-A is so good. But don't think of it as just filling yourself up. Start eating as a way of welcoming 
the kingdom of God. Start eating as a, welcome, as a way of welcoming the kingdom of God. I want you to just close your eyes, and I want you to bow your head, and we're going to come to the Lord's table, of course. And it's appropriate that we would do this at the end of our talk today because it's really significant that you understand what Jesus was trying to do. He was trying to offer himself in the ordinariness of life. I want you to come to the table of Jesus here where the bread represents his body and where the cup represents his blood. I want you to come to this table and I want you to bring your ordinary life and I want you to be willing to give it to him. Yes, your social schedule. Yes, your entertainment desires. Yes, even your diet. Bring it to him and let him take over. Let him lead you to invite others to a table. Let him lead you to the table where he's always a guest as you are seated with others. Father, we come to you now and we come to this table. Work in our minds. Change our paradigms. Help us to think differently about how we live. Help us to understand who Jesus really was and how he's reaching out to us even now, calling us to come. Teach us to be like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. See you next time.